All right, if I could get you to return to your seats. This morning, we are going to be taking a slight pause in our study of the book of Acts by returning something, returning to um, a series which we partake in every year. The series is titled Repent and Be Loved. If you want to know why we do this, it's because we've got to keep the mission in front of us. And the mission of Central Hope is something that greets you on that back banner each and every week. Be loved and loved. This is what, uh, as a pastor, I'm seeking the church to do, to be loved and loved. To be loved by God and to be loved by one another and to love God and to love others. This is our proper response and our due diligence as Christians to do this. But this is a challenge. I must say, it is a challenge. It is easily understood, but not always practiced. And so in order to practice our mission, it is important that we turn from the ways in which we live and turn towards God. Thus, repent. Repent. And so the series titled that we'll be going through for the, through the next five weeks is a, is a series titled, Repent and Be Loved. This morning, we are going to be looking at what is repentance. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading the entire chapter. It's a lot. It's printed in your bulletin for those of you that don't have a Bible. Uh, and just one word for you guys that don't have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. If you've misplaced your Bible, take it. Steal it. I don't care. It's yours. Um, yes, the church should steal the Bible. Yes. Okay, you heard that correct. Um, that Bible is yours. So if you will, would you look with me at the word of God from Luke Chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That is, they were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Knowledge is power. Do you believe that? Knowledge is power. Knowledge indeed can topple powerful regimes. It can even transform the world we live in, our families, our cities, our country, our world. Yes, knowledge is power. It can indeed change you. But the question for you is, do you believe it? Do you believe that knowledge is power? Well, you have to look at history to really believe it. And over the last 500 years, I think there is one piece of knowledge that has transformed the world more than any other piece of knowledge in all of that history. And it's a piece of theological knowledge that comes right out of the Protestant Reformation from the early 1500s. It comes from the pen of a man named Martin Luther. Luther, at the time, in 1517, was a Catholic monk. And he saw something that he wanted to be addressed. And so he wrote these things down on a piece of paper, and then he hung them on the door of a church in a city called Wittenberg. It was his hope that as he posted these, these things on, on this paper called the 95 Theses, that it would reform the church, the church that he loved. It would reform the theological knowledge that the church was giving out. This one little moment, though, created the expansion of worlds unbeknownst to him. It is this moment that has placed you and me in this room right now. Think about that for a moment. If it weren't for the 95 Theses, you and I would not be in here right now. Knowledge has power. But what did Martin Luther know that was so powerful? What did he know that can change the world that we lived in? What did he know? I'll never forget the day that I learned it. It happened in one of my seminary classes when one of my professors looked out and onto my class and asked us sarcastically. He said, men, women, 
do you love the Protestant Reformation? Now, let me, let me give you a little context. I went to a school called Reformed Theological Seminary. The whole seminary was based on the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And so, of course, into a room of people that went to a school called Reformed Theological Seminary, of course, what do we think we're going to say when he says, do you love the Reformation? Oh, yes, 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 we do. Yes, sir, we do. Okay, he said, all right, all right. Name me some of your favorite Protestant theologians, your reformers. Tell me, tell me. Someone yells out, John Calvin. Oh, yes, John Calvin. Great, wonderful, yeah. Give me another one. Someone yells, Luther, Martin Luther. Yes, Martin Luther. We love Martin Luther. Yes, okay, great. Okay, you great theologians, you who love the Protestant Reformation, tell me something about Martin Luther. So we sat there. Oh, he penned the 95 Theses and started the church in Germany. And boy, he set off. Yes, great. The, the, the 95 Theses. Okay, you great minds, you theologians. Can you tell me one of the 95 Theses? <laughs> now, let me tell you something. These aren't dummies in the classroom. I mean, I sat next to a guy who ended up getting his PhD from Cambridge. Yeah, like the place where like the PhD was invented, okay? He had no clue, and neither did I. And I found myself going, what is it that changed the world? What is, what is this knowledge that Luther had that sparked this revolution and this reformation that has put us in this room? What is it? And I sat on the edge of my seat longing to understand, and the professor leaned in, and he said this. I'm gonna give you one, and it's the first one that Luther said. And the first thesis that Luther gave to the church in 1517, and the one I'm saying this to you today is this, the first one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. At this moment, I learned the knowledge that would change the world, the knowledge that put you and I here in Little Rock, Arkansas today was the knowledge of genuine, true, biblical repentance. You see, when Luther looked at the church that he was in at that time, he saw that it had become overly political in its theology and what it was teaching. And this certainly bled into their understanding and teaching of repentance and what he understood of scripture and how it laid out repentance before him, he saw this is not in line with the Bible. Can we have a debate? Can we at least talk about what the Bible talks about with regards to repentance? The story goes on. They didn't want to have this debate. But at the heart of this reformation, the spark that lit the world on fire is this. It's the proper understanding of repentance. You see, knowledge has power. And a proper understanding of repentance has power. And what I'm telling you is has power for you today right now. But the question is, what is repentance? How does the Bible define it? Can it affect the world we is, as we know it? Indeed, I think it can. But here's the thing before we get into this. I wish I could say the church and its people have embraced this biblical repentance that Luther was proposing. But sadly, this reality is true. I have found time and time again that there is still much confusion, even amidst the Protestants. And because of this, the church has failed to experience the transforming power that a proper understanding of repentance brings. 
If I might be so bold to say this, one of the primary reasons that we experience a lukewarm faith is because we have an improper understanding of repentance. Think in your mind, what is repentance? Can you give a clear and and, and easy way to understand what repentance is? Perhaps this lukewarm faith in your life right now You know, when we say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you look at your life and say, I don't know if I love God with all of my heart, mind, and strength. Perhaps the reason for that is because you don't understand repentance. We've got to understand the biblical definition of repentance, and we find the biblical definition of repentance in Luke 15. I I can stand here and assuredly say to you, Luke 15 is the best text for understanding biblical repentance, and let me show you why. In this story, Jesus tells three stories, and these three stories form one parable. Now, we find the context of this story in the first two verses of chapter 15, and there we read that Jesus was drawing sinners to himself. Tax collectors and sinners are being drawn to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners are going to Jesus, and they're they're being with him. And then we read that The the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, are grumbling under their breath, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus, in response to their grumbling, to the religious, tells them the parable, the three stories. Now, there are three stories, and this is so vitally important to understand Luke 15. Look at the first story. It's the story that Jesus says of a lost sheep. And he starts to form this paradigm of what, how the stories are gonna go. The sheep is lost, and shortly after, a search begins, and then a sheep is found. When the sheep is found, a party breaks out. And then Jesus concludes the short little story saying this, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the second story is similar. The second story Jesus tells is, is about this lost coin. And like the first story, a search begins to find the coin. And then when that is which is lost is found, what happens? A party breaks out again. In verse 10, Jesus concludes this story saying this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you see, he's developing this pattern of repentance, repentance, repentance. Then he tells the third story. And this is the story that is most beloved in the church, but it has to be seen in light of the first two stories because in this third story, the pattern continues. Something is lost, and that which is lost is the younger brother. He takes his inheritance and spends it recklessly, but then something is found. The younger brother comes home, and then when he comes home, just like the first two parties, there is a party, but there's a glaring omission of this third story, and we must not miss it. Unlike the first two stories that end with Jesus saying there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents, this story does not end in this way. The story ends with the father pleading with the older brother to come into the party. What is going on with this? Here's what's going on. Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and the scribes, and he's saying this very simply, something's not right 
with your understanding of repentance. Because there is no joy in your life around sinners and tax collectors. There's bitterness. Your understanding of repentance is off because there's no joy. This is the truth of the church today. Many people's hearts. There is no joy in our hearts because there's not a proper understanding of repentance. Just like there was no joy in the hearts of, sinner, of the Pharisees and the scribes, there, there wasn't a proper understanding of repentance. What's going on here? Well, this is what I want to unpack. There's three things that I want us to do this morning as we unpack this third story because it is indeed in this third story that we really do grasp what true and genuine repentance is. And so what we're gonna see is that this third story exposes what we often think of repentance and how it's misguided. This story will also reveal what repentance truly is, the biblical reality of it. But finally, what it will do, it, was, it will compel you and I to repent. So it not only will expose and reveal, it will compel. So this is what I wanna do this morning. I wanna go back to this third story and see what it is, genuine repentance is, that we might take hold of power. Knowledge is power, my friends. So let's study repentance from this third story. But let's first look at what we think repentance is and see how Jesus exposes it. Repentance, what we think. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a crisp $20 bill rejected at a store? Like you get a new one, you get one from the bank, and you're like, ooh, this thing's nice. I mean, there's no difference between this crisp $20 bill and someone that's been crumpled up. But it's still nice. You're like, man, I don't know, you feel richer because of it. But if you have one of these nice, crisp, cool $20 bills, and you go to, let's say, Kroger, and you give the $20 bill, there's a chance that the clerk might take that $20 bill and be like, I don't know, that looks fake. And they take that pen, wherever that is, in their drawer, and they take it, and they'll mark it. Boom. Of course, the marker is trying to determine whether or not it's fake. If the pen comes up a certain color, it's counterfeit. And if it's not the other color, it's real. In this third story, I use, this, use that illustration to, to demonstrate this. What we see is that we see repentance that looks real, sounds real, even feels real. But what Jesus does is he takes a marker and marks it across and it comes up counterfeit. Let me show you what we think of counterfeit repentance. Let me show you. In this third story that Jesus uses these three parables, there is a perfect depiction of counterfeit repentance. It's, it's, it comes from this. Let me, let me show you. In the first two stories, Jesus uses the word for repentance, which is metanunti. It's a Greek word. And this word means a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. You saw in the first two stories, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. You see that pattern, repent, repent, repent. Now, while we don't see this word used in the third story, we do see this sort of metanunti, this changing of mind taking place. The younger son, who's been away from his family, has hit rock bottom. He finds himself in the pig pen, face down in the mud. And there he has this metanunti, a change of mind, which results in a change of lifestyle. In verse 17, we actually get into his mind and we hear what he's thinking in his brain, with his face down on the ground. He says to himself, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'm gonna go to my father and I'm gonna say to him three things. 
Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here we see how this young man understands repentance. He's gonna acknowledge his sin against his dad and against God. He's gonna acknowledge the consequences of his sin, that he's not worthy to even be called a son. But then he'll finally seek to pay off his debt for the rest of his life in being a slave to his dad. If you've ever been around repentance, what he says seems to be repentance. It looks real, feels real, sounds real. It even fits with our understanding of metanunti. But what I'm telling you is this. This is counterfeit repentance. Consider what happens as the story unfolds. Verse 20, the younger son arises and goes to his father just as he said he would. And while he was still a long way off, his father comes to him and embraces him and kisses him. And when the son finally has a chance to speak, look at what he does. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. The first thing that he planned to say. The second thing he says is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The second thing that he had planned to say. But at the second statement, the father juts in. And there's a good but right there in the verse. The father says, but, the father says, bring the best robe, his ring and new shoes, kill the fattened calf. So here's what I want you to see more than anything at this point. I want you to see the glaring omission that was placed in the story by Jesus. The omission, of course, is the third, story, the third thing that the son had prepared to say. And what was that third thing? Treat me as one of your hired servants. The omission here exposes a wrong understanding of repentance. I mean, consider what's at the heart of this statement that the young had, the son had planned to say. The younger son wants to be treated as a, a doulos, a slave, that is someone who makes their livelihood by what they do. That their standing in the family was based off of their behavior, off of their work. I mean, he understood that he wasn't worthy to be called a son. He understood what he had done and how damaging that was. And the only way that he felt, felt like he could belong in the family or even be fed was to be a slave. Of course, we can all understand why someone would reason this way. It truly makes sense. It's the sense in which we can pay back that which was lost. Yeah, it's up to us. If we wanna make it in this family, it's up to us. But here's the thing about such an attitude. I mean, you have to think, you have to think about such an attitude. This attitude is a similar attitude to the life that he once lived, a self-centered reliance. But this self-centered reliance wasn't being spent on how he wanted to live and spending it recklessly. It was a self-centered attitude living how God or the Father wanted him to live. But at the heart of it was a self-centeredness. It's self-centered reliance. This is how he thought of repentance. Yes, it's his humbling circumstances that led him home, but his understanding of repentance only turned him from his godlessness to godliness. I'm gonna say that again. His humbling circumstances led him home, but he understood repentance to be turning from his godlessness to godliness, turning from wicked ways to holy ways. But what Jesus does in this story is he exposes that such an understanding of repentance is not true. Let me ask you this question. Can you relate to this? Your understanding of repentance, 
that when you have sinned knowingly or ignorantly, you feel that this sense that you have to make amends with God so that you don't find yourself in that situation again. Like when you're caught looking at websites you shouldn't be looking at, you vow to never look at it again. You're just, I'm gonna do this and set it all up and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work this way, I'm, I'm gonna do that. Or when, you're, when your spouse is at their wits end with you, their constant pleas for you to change, simply fall on deaf ears, but when the word divorce comes in, then there's, oh, I got my attention and I'm gonna make all these amends and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And, and, and it's just like, okay, self-reliance, self-reliance, self-reliance. But I want you to see this. Such acts are just another form of self-reliance, this vowing to change on our own. And the truth of it is, this vowing lacks the power to actually change the heart. I'm gonna say this, you'll never find the heavenly power to transform your heart when you only turn from your godlessness and commit yourself to godliness. You will never find the power that can actually transform your heart. And Jesus in this text exposes such understanding as counterfeit. This repentance looks real, feels real, but it fails to have the power to transform your heart. If this is your understanding of repentance, there's two things I want you to do. Stop first. Stop it. Stop thinking that this is repentance. Such thinking has plagued the church for too long. It's this sort of thinking that continues to keep people in their sin and churches and in neutral, including yourself. Stop it. The second is this, listen, listen. True and powerful repentance is not far from your understanding. You are so close. So it's vital that you listen to what Jesus puts before us about repentance. And that's what we're gonna do now. We're gonna listen to how Jesus defines true repentance. What is it? So what, after all, is repentance? We've seen first what it is not. Let's turn and see what it is. Recall again what happened with the younger son after he had reasoned with himself in the pig pen. He goes to the father. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges he's no longer worthy to be called a son. But then he receives the embrace of the father, entering into the party that was thrown in his honor. In this, in this way it unfolds, here we have a picture, a clarifying picture of what repentance is. There's four things. It is going to God. It is confessing your sin. It is acknowledging with horror your sin's consequences. And it is being graciously embraced by God. Going to God, confessing your sins, acknowledging with horror your sin's consequences, and being graciously embraced by God. This is true repentance. And such repentance seems easy and amazing. But I'm here to tell you that such is difficult, more difficult than you think. Unlike the repentance that we have learned and embraced and thought of, the metanunti that we think, true repentance is not self-reliant. It's actually humbling. It is giving up of oneself and resting only on the mercy and grace of God. It is getting rid of your independence and relying entirely on God to determine your relationship and standing with him. And do you know who this is really hard for? The religious. This is why Jesus is telling this story to the people he's telling. He's telling it to scribes and Pharisees, people who are grumbling that Jesus is spending time with sinners and tax collectors. This story is not easy for them. And if it's not easy for them, then therefore it is not easy for us, the church. People who have done what is right and think 
that we have done all the things that give us unique privileges of being the sons and daughters of God. No, this is very difficult for us. And oh, that we would have the ears to hear the story that Jesus is giving us, that we might have the the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we might see what this parable reveals to us about our standing with God and what repentance is. I mean, I want you to consider the third part of this story, this the, the ending, the older brother is standing in the field and he hears the celebration and he is ticked. He is mad. And he, he's so mad that he doesn't go into the party. And so the father has to come out and try to entreat him to join him. But he says, no, I'm not doing this. He says, look, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I mean, think and listen how the brother thinks of his life. His serving, his slaving for his father is the very thing that brings about a party. It wasn't about the mercy of God. It was about the servitude to God. And his understanding of his acceptance with God was slavery equals acceptance and love. It's the very same perspective of the younger son when his face is down in the mud. His understanding, the church's understanding of repentance is one of turning from our godlessness to godliness. But Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. True repentance is turning from our godlessness to God who is rich in mercy. Framing repentance correctly is so vitally important, especially when we consider that Jesus commands us to repent. Jesus willed all of life to be one of repentance. So how do we understand repentance? Do we understand the way it's framed in this text, that it is turning from our godlessness to God, or is it godlessness to godliness? Oh, that we would have the ears to hear and a heart that understands that true repentance is turning from godlessness to God. Repentance, true repentance, is a relinquishing of ourself It is a constant state of humility that understands and relies solely on the mercy and grace of God in our standing with him. This is difficult, but we have to see this. It is turning from our godlessness to God. Why would we turn to God, though? What would compel us to turn and to relinquish all that we have and say, only on the mercy of God do I rest my standing with you? Do we have a merciful God? That's the question. And I think Luke 15, without question, says we have a merciful God. And one of the things in this shows us that, oh my goodness, I'm gonna repent. Where do I find this? Well, I think in Luke 15, we have a trustworthy picture of God, a beautiful example of God that warrants our trust in him, our turning from our godlessness to God. Here's what I mean. You know, one of the unique characteristics about this story, and you can see this, is that most of the characters in this third story can be easily identified in the setting in which Jesus tells the story. The younger brothers, like the sinners and the tax collectors that Jesus is eating with. The older brother in the stories are the religious leaders and scribes that Jesus is being criticized by. The father in Jesus' story is is like God the father, But the question becomes, there's one person who we cannot place in the story. It's Jesus. Where is Jesus in this story? 
We, we see everybody placed in this story masterfully. Jesus does it. But where is Jesus? The answer to this question begins by considering another glaring omission in the third story. Recall that the first two stories consisted of something that was lost and what followed that which was lost. It was a search, right? You had these patterns being developed in these three stories and there's one pattern that wasn't followed in the third, or at least one of them, and that was a search. Who's doing the searching? Well, you probably can guess it, it's Jesus. You see, culturally speaking, if something like Jesus' story had ever unfolded, it was expected that the older brother would be responsible for finding his sibling and bringing him home. But in this story, the older brother never seeks the younger brother in the story. He stays home and continues to slave for his father. This would have been a detail that a Jew would have definitely picked up. So when we consider the fact that the young, older brother was called to seek after that which was lost, we actually find that Jesus is doing that very thing in eating with sinners and tax collectors. In this real life moment, Jesus is revealing that he's the true older brother seeking to save that which was lost. This concept takes on even more meaning and more consideration when we consider the ramification for the older brother when his younger brother returned home and how costly this was. You recall that when the younger brother left home, he was given his portion of his father's inheritance so that all that was given to him was then spent on reckless living. That means the rest of the material, the rest of the goods that were at the home belonged to who, ultimately? It's the older brother. So when the older brother sees the ring on the younger brother, when he sees the robe being placed on his, on his shoulders and the shoes on his feet, when he sees the calf being killed on him, what is he seeing? He's seeing his money go towards someone who doesn't deserve it. He already got his. That means that when the party was being thrown, it was in uh, his honor, or not, it was on his dime. And this understandably angered him. But here's the thing about Jesus as our older brother Jesus willingly seeks after the lost and pays the price for the mercy and the grace of the Father to be bestowed to godless people, people like you and me. We have to see that in this story, Jesus is the true older brother who willingly laid down his life to pay the cost of the party that comes when one sinner repents. What compels true repentance? It is the mercy of God which has been paid for by our true older brother Jesus on the cross. And the question for you is this, do you know that your true older brother Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost, which is you? And he has paid the price for the party that comes when one sinner repents. You see, when you know him, know God is gracious, loving, and kind, Oh, you cannot help but to turn from your godlessness to God because there's joy in that moment. So friends, what is true repentance? We've got to understand this. 
There is so much power in a proper understanding of repentance. Turn from your godless ways. Stop depending on yourself for everything. Give them up. Turn to God. He is rich in mercy. And you will find much joy and peace. The angels in heaven will rejoice. And the singing and dancing will be quite profound. Repent. Repent. This is what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks. We're going to be zeroing in on the four primary ways in which we cling to our life, that we hold on for dear life. Significance, control, comfort, and acceptance. And we're going to deep dive into all of these realities that we might repent and be loved by the God who has sought us and given us great mercy. Let me pray. Oh, great God, we give thanks to you for your mercy, how it indeed moves us to repentance. We are not deserving of such grace, especially from the fact that we just cling to our life, cling to religious ways, cling to all of these things. Oh, that we would cling simply to the mercy that you have given to us, a mercy that has been paid for by your blood, a mercy that we receive freely. Oh, that we would receive this.